I am struck by how little the truth of what people experience behind bars actually gets out. Welcome to New Thinking from the Center for Court Innovation. I'm Matt Watkins. Homer Venters spent almost a decade providing health care in New York City's jails. For five of those years, he was chief medical officer, overseeing the care of thousands of people held in the famously violent facilities on Rikers Island. Venters realized early on that for many of the people dying in jail, the primary cause of their death was the jail itself. To document these deaths, what he calls an epidemiology of brutality, Venters and his team created a statistical category no one had dared to track before, jail attributable deaths. His work led him into frequent opposition with the security services at Rikers. It also led to his book, published this year, Life and Death in Rikers Island, after he left the island for a final time in 2017. Today, we're going to talk about what he learned on Rikers, his thoughts on the debate over its future, and his current work investigating questionable deaths in jails across the country. Homer Venters is now a senior health and justice fellow at Community-Oriented Correctional Health Services. Homer, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I thought we could start with how it is as a physician, you got involved in, in sort of correctional health, and it seems early on very much from a sort of human rights framework. That's right. I trained in a program at Montefiore Medical Center, social medicine, where we learn about and uh, engage in the practice of human rights and how it intersects with medicine. And so for me, that meant as I learned how to be an internal medicine doctor uh, working in a clinic on 161st Street in the South Bronx, I had patients that were across the street at Bronx Defenders, a local legal aid organization. And it was clear to me talking to them that it was hard for them even to get to our own clinic. And so I, as my social medicine project, actually put out a shingle and started seeing patients in their offices across the street. And there learned a, a lot about medicine, but really a lot about how the justice system confers health risks to them, uh, how difficult it is to seek care or even be appropriately assessed for health problems while you're incarcerated. And then coming home, the myriad of barriers to even thinking about taking care of your own health, let alone your family's health. So that, for me, opened up an interest in this intersection between justice and health. Uh, and then I went on for two years as a fellow at NYU to look at health care for detained immigrants, the ICE detention system. And then from there, went to uh, be deputy medical director at Rikers. And so w what year did you first arrive on Rikers? At the end of 2008, can you remember back to what your uh, initial impressions were when you arrived? I mean, you cross, you first, of course, have to cross this famously long bridge, almost a mile long bridge to get to Rikers. It was like going into another world. I, the first day where I was really there to see some of the facilities was a terrible snowstorm in, in November of 2008. And uh, one of our long-standing physician assistants, Muhammad Jaffer, took me around. And as the snow was falling, uh, he took me from f facility to facility, and so they kind of reveal themselves just as you get in front of them in the snow. And one of the stark impressions I got that would just play out every single day after that is that as you approach the biggest structures, the most well-built structures on the island, uh, I learned that those are actually buildings built for solitary confinement, uh, OBCC, the Bing, and GRVC. And you would hear people yelling out just just as a normal course of events, just constantly yelling, screaming, banging. Uh, 
Um, and that was pretty uh, horrific uh, to see for the first time and, you know, didn't actually stop being a, a horrible thing to be around. So you mean you have this memory of hearing these voices sort of coming through the, the snowfall? Yeah. That building actually ended up being uh, the little trailer that we used that I had as my office for a long time was right underneath that building. And so that that yelling never stops. The, the, the trauma that people are feeling, the like need to just scream and yell just to get any <laughs> communication across uh, when you're in solitary confinement, that's pretty much nonstop. And so, you know, obviously seeing it and witnessing it is not uh, anything like what it's like to experience it. And also the fact that these edifices, these buildings happen to be the shiniest, biggest, newest structures, and that we in the health service were down in this little uh, trailer that actually flooded out during one of those hurricanes, um, you know, it sends a pretty strong message to everybody. So we know that people are arriving in jail and often cycling through in and out of jail. We're talking about people who often are arriving already with some pretty serious and often untreated health conditions. But what did you then learn about the actual health risks of the jail itself? It's true. People do come with uh, profound health concerns. We've kind of steered people with behavioral health problems, people from communities of color where where access to basic health services, preventive services are absent um, into incarceration. Then when they get there, there are deadly and very grave new health risks that are conferred to them. So these are risks that contribute to death, uh, sexual abuse, physical abuse, uh, profound trauma. But the risks that the jail would confer to people weren't meted out uniformly. That is to say, people with behavioral health problems, people of color, people uh, who are LGBTQ, those people would soak up many more of these new health risks than people who uh, were white or people who didn't have some of these other issues. And we, over the years, as I learned from patients much more about this, uh, our team got much uh, more focused on how to actually measure and report out these health risks. And what are some of those, those health risks? Well, the First and the most dramatic is the risk of death, uh, that when you come to jail, whatever your health profile, there is a risk that you will die there and that is attributable to the jail itself. So when a patient comes who has diabetes, and I write about one of these cases in the book, and I see, I've seen cases like this all over the country, if you need insulin to treat your diabetes, and you know that, and you communicate that to people, but the system works in a way to deprive you of insulin and you die, that death is attributable to the jail. Now, unfortunately, in most places around the country, because a medical examiner may conduct an autopsy or write a report that says this was a death from natural causes, and because most correctional settings don't have adequate uh, review of deaths to include whether or not there was a, a contributing factor from the system, nobody will be held accountable. No systems will change as a result of these deaths. But seeing the death like that seen other deaths that were clearly the result of uh, systems errors and systems uh, factors in the jails is what led me to be convinced that we needed to actually label every death as uh, being jail attributable if it was. So yeah, if we look at this category, jail attributable deaths, which um, I'm I'm making the episode uh, title for this conversation just because I think it seems to be at the core of, um, I mean, if not a transformation, I mean, it's not really advocacy so much for you, but it's more a dedication to simply documenting what you were seeing going on in the jails and at Rikers. And that really required 
pushing against a, a big power imb- imbalance and all the institutional pressures against releasing this kind of data and, in fact, just creating this category that's making something that was hidden visible. Yeah, I think that the central challenge is that these are, these are all these jails and prisons are paramilitary structures. If you look at the health footprint, who provides health care, who oversees it, at very best, like in New York City and Chicago, you have a health service that reports up independently to a commissioner of health or a health and hospitals president. But it's still, even there as an independent health authority, is very much a tenant-landlord relationship. The power is with the correctional staff, the security staff. I just, you use this word paramilitary quite often, so it's a deliberate choice. What are you trying to get at? That just that the fact that security is, is paramount? Yeah, security, it's, I wouldn't even say that security is paramount because many of the practices that security forces engage in don't promote security or safety. Mm-hmm. So solitary confinement is a great example. We have zero evidence around this country that solitary confinement makes places safer. It popped back up in the 1980s after a horrible riot and the, the death of correctional staff in Marion, Illinois, at a facility there. But solitary confinement doesn't make places safer. But it's a good, great example of how paramilitary structures work because there is not a demand that security services prove that this tool, which we now know harms people, improves security. They, Because they are in charge and because these orders flow down and because civilian leadership in city administrations are often reluctant to interfere, uh, they're afraid of the correctional officers union, they then allow for decisions to get made that aren't based on evidence, don't promote safety at all. But the paramilitary nature of these places for me, it stands in great contrast to how health systems are run. So health, if you look at a hospital, a clinic, there is a mandate to collect and report out standardized data about health outcomes. Uh, People who reimburse hospitals like CMS, Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, they look very closely at this. And nobody gets to decide as a a hospital or a health system, and they're not going to report out because we know that's how we promote better quality. And we reduce nosocomial deaths, deaths that are caused in these places by infections and other things. Hospital attributable deaths. Yes, that's right. That's right. But that is completely, uh, you know, 180 degrees uh, in opposition to how these security services work, where the health services are really almost always working for the security service. So you have a sheriff or a commissioner of correction deciding what the appropriate scope of care is, uh, where all of the structures that promote quality in that state or in that county, the State Department of Health, the county health uh, commissioner, but then also the Centers for Disease Control, HHS, all that is absent in these places. And so then, you know, the paramilitary nature of these places, which is to keep prying eyes out and to make decisions, you know, based on the security priorities as they're perceived, that pushes out a lot of what would be evidence-based ethical health care. So then how do you physically, you and and your colleagues go about trying to assemble and assessing sort of this number of jail attributable deaths. I mean, we know that we're dealing in jails often with pretty archaic information gathering systems. I mean, I've heard numerous stories or read numerous stories from public defenders in the city of people being held on bail even after that bail has been paid because the fax machine uh, wasn't working to send out news of the bail being paid. Yeah, so this is where I put a lot of effort and energy into the electronic health record. As a human rights tool, uh, what it does is it allows you to collect variables that are associated with abuse and then put together aggregated reports. And this was really important for the Department of Justice so that you can show 
that the rate of some health outcome is associated with the rate of exposure to some variable. So, you know, we were able to put together the first, I think, first regression analysis of solitary confinement to show that when we looked at 225,000 jail admissions, which you could only do with an electronic record, and show that if you were ever exposed to solitary confinement, your risk of self-harm, physically harming yourself, was about seven times higher. The other reason that these systems, technology systems, information systems are critical is because in the the heat of the moment, um, in the crucible of of, of a conflict where a, a security person wants one thing, a patient has another perspective, and then you have a doctor or a nurse, you know, there's no winning or changing that power dynamic in that moment. And so the when we instituted our dual loyalty trainings for all the staff, one of the scenarios we put up was a patient is brought into a cubicle, the correctional officer stands at the edge, edge of the cubicle and wants everybody to sign off on a uh, use of force report, an injury report, uh, and the patient says, that's not what happened. I didn't get in a fight with somebody else. I was beat up by correctional officers. And so in that moment, having already changed our electronic medical record to collect data, let us, and this is what the doctor did. This is a real scenario. The doctor was able to tell the patient, I'm documenting everything in this electronic uh, template. This is going to go to somebody up the chain of command who can then uh, see you again and investigate this. Uh, and it, it lets us all get out of this very threatening moment, which is we're worried about what's going to happen to you and me. I have to get home tonight. And so not all the time, but in some ways, technology can help also remove the staff and the patients from really dangerous situations. And what did your data say about what percentage of deaths in jail could be classed as jail attributable? The percentage of all the deaths that were jail attributable would range, I believe, between 15 and 25 percent most years. But there were a couple of years where the percentage of the deaths that were jail attributable was about 50 percent. And so those are deaths that are, can be preventable suicides or incarcerated person on incarcerated person violence or violence between use of force of between staff and people who are incarcerated. It, it runs the gamut, Right. That's right. I think the ones that are easily identifiable are, you know, suicides, which is the leading cause of death in jails in this country right now. It's really mind-numbing to think that we've accepted a, a situation where that's the case. It's t- the leading cause of death. Uh, but suicides, homicides, there are accidental overdoses where people are taking, you know, drugs. But then there are other deaths that are the result of medical neglect or the inability of people to receive care that they need, that we know they need. And those are the deaths that I fear uh, the current approach of most prisons and jails uh, misses these deaths by design. So that the case I mentioned, you know, somebody has uh, diabetes and we know they need insulin. They don't get it. And then the official report inside and also the coroner's report is, well, they died from diabetes and they had a long history of diabetes. But if they were denied insulin, that death is attributable to that place. There are other deaths like that. So if somebody dies of seizures, but we put them in a place where they didn't get their seizure medicine and then we didn't watch them or see them while they they were in that place, that is a, a death attributable to the system. And then early on in your tenure at Rikers, you, you also began tracking use of force incidents. And I'm wondering what was the the trigger for for doing that kind of work and what you found. You know, from the very beginning, uh, a young man named Christopher Robinson was killed at Rikers shortly before I started. So just, I think, a few months. But one of my early projects was to work on 
digging into what happened to him and coming up with a true sense of not only his death, but what was the health environment for, he was a young 18-year-old beaten to death at RNDC, the adolescent jail. And as I dug into that case, but also looked at the other health uh, outcomes, so at that time we still had a paper medical record, uh, I found a lot of jaw and hand fractures. I mean, our team did. And what was evident was that it was an incredibly violent setting and that that violence was due in a lot of cases to inmate inmate fights or p- fights between patients, but actually a distressing number of the injuries, serious injuries, happened during use of force. And so as we built a real injury surveillance system, that's one of the things that came out of that death, was to build a system that could much more um, comprehensively not only know whenever somebody was injured and seriously injured, but also actually force healthcare providers to ask about certain variables that might be associated with abuse. Were you injured uh, intentionally? And if it was an intentional injury, uh, who did it? And where did it happen? At what time of day did it happen? And, and eventually, we started to look at, you know, were you restrained? Were you cuffed, handcuffed when you were um, injured? So putting those data elements into uh, injury surveillance was critical. And then as I started to see those patients myself, because some of these patients had suffered horrific abuse from correctional officers and had been told, you know, very clearly not to seek medical care uh, or to not hold to, it down. That's right, right. That's right. Or not to say what happened to them or even had actually been told you had a fight, you know, that scenario I mentioned. And so that then really taught me a lot about how corrupted the systems were that were in place. And they were corrupted in a manner that downgraded injuries from more serious to less serious, that they were corrupted in a way that uh, kept people away from seeking any care often. And they were corrupted in a way that used solitary confinement as uh, one of the core punishments for anybody that didn't follow the rules that the correctional staff set out. Right. I think you found sort of suspicious number of reports from correction staff about injuries attributed to this category of slips and falls. Yes. Our first analysis of injuries, we just did what shouldn't be inflammatory. We just wanted to figure out the rate of injury, how often our patients were physically injured. So we sat down and looked at 4,000 paper injury reports, and we just categorized what was on them. We didn't even look at you know, what was behind them or, or what systems go into like uh, shaping who gets to write the, the actual cause. But when we looked at that, the most common cause of injury was, and we published this data as our first publication that foretold a lot of the pushback that we would get down the road with everything else. But the most common cause of injury on these these reports, these 4,000 injury reports, was inmate-inmate fight. But the second leading cause of injury was slip and fall. And it was really, for me, an eye-opening moment as I then started to talk to patients about <laughs> what went on. I'll never forget seeing a patient who had a slip and fall injury what was written everywhere that I could find, the medical records and also the DOC security reports, was that he had slipped and fallen and broken his jaw on a toilet. And, you know, this obviously in this case was not true. Um, but as I dug in, we dug into our whole team, dug into this slip and fall category, it's clear that that is where a lot of abuse and neglect would hide. And then by doing this 
simply documenting work, which is something of a radical act taking place inside of this setting, you also found that people with mental health problems and adolescents were really overrepresented in these use of force reports. That's absolutely right. As we became more systematic about putting together this really distressing cohort of patients who were seriously injured or in uses of force, two groups that were really overrepresented were people with mental health concerns and adolescents. And if you want to really understand with a lot of subtlety and, and horror how that works, you can just consider the story of Khalif Browder, right, who sustained multiple injuries, was beaten by correctional staff, was threatened with solitary confinement if he didn't hold it down, as you said. That dynamic played out all the time. And the adolescents and the people with mental health uh, problems, also not purely because people had mental health problems, but because at the time, the primary response to any behavioral issue, uh, any problems or lack of like agreement with, with correctional officers was the use of solitary confinement. So when we were digging into this work, 25% of those kids were in solitary confinement, 25%. And then if we look at people with mental health issues, uh, we had built at Rikers Island, the Department of Corrections, but with the sign-off of the city, had built a special solitary confinement unit for people with mental illness. So that is... That tells you more than you need right. to know. Just to say that sentence is shameful, right? The, the solitary confinement unit for people with serious mental illness is something you know, that we eventually got rid of. But that place contained many of the worst outcomes because people who had who needed treatment, who needed engagement, instead got an arcane set of rules and then funneled into these places that were incredibly violent uh, where they you know, lost any sense of agency they might have had and then were met with um, brutal beatings and neglect and more infractions and sometimes financial fines and even new uh, criminal charges for trying to survive in this place. I mean, it, it occurs to me, I mean, Khalif Browder's suicide took place after his release outside of jail after he's, the charges against him were finally dismissed. But if, if anybody's death could be called jail attributable, it would be Khalif Browder. Absolutely. And we really have yet to scratch the surface of how impactful, how negatively impactful incarceration is on health after. One of the important things for us in tracking injuries was to get a sense of the incidence of how many new injuries happen in jail. And so when we went to publish this data, we found that no other jails or prisons had done this. Uh, and so before I left, we just did an extrapolation where we tried to look at how many cases of sexual abuse and how many cases of head trauma, just head trauma, uh, happen in the city jails. And then say, okay, if this rate stands across the country, 5,000 jails and prisons, how many other people in the country are going home with uh, head trauma and sexual abuse? Because you know, we know now Obviously, sexual abuse has a profound lasting effect. It can be physical, but really the emotional toll it takes lasts forever. And the often. jail setting facilitates That's right. sexual assault. That's right. And head trauma, we now know, is really closely linked to dementia and CTE. And so we think about it all the time with youth sports, with veterans, with uh, football. But we have 12 million incarcerations a year in this country, and many people are going home with a very different and much more challenging health profile because of what they experienced behind bars. I mean, would it be fair to say, I mean, this use of force report, you said there was resistance to it internally. I don't think there was a ton of response to it from the city. Do you see that 
report as feeding into this Department of Justice investigation into Rikers in, in 2014 that, that had this pretty explosive and, and really uh, strong language findings about the kind of violence, systemic violence that's taking place and the kind of cover-ups of it. I will say that early on, I worked with my team to change how we collect data and put it together. We had a lot of conversations about who would consume this data. You know, when we changed our electronic medical record, it was definitely my intent that we would collect data and be able to produce aggregatable reports that hopefully security staff would respond to, but in anticipation of their lack of concern or response for the Department of Justice and for other outside authorities. So one of the data points that was really impactful from this time was that if you were in a violent altercation as an adolescent, if that altercation was with uh, security staff, you were more likely to sustain a blow to the head than if that violent altercation was with another inmate. And that's insane. It blows me away even to think about it now, right? But when I read the monitor's reports, the Nunez monitor, the settlement, right, from this very process with the DOJ, the seventh talks about the same culture of violence. It actually specifically references this tendency to hit people in the head that persists. And so I think that the use of the data was important for us in making our case clearly and and, in an evidence-based way to the DOJ and to others. And then you've talked about this already a bit, but I just wanted to go a bit deeper on, on your relationship to to the guards, to security staff at Rikers, you and, and your staff, and how often and how it manifested itself, you felt maybe intimidation from them. I, I was struck by this point in the book when you said that you would sometimes carry your stethoscope around with you, even when you didn't need it. Clearly, the stethoscope was some sort of, you felt it was some sort of shield for your work. Yeah, I always carried it with me, and I often did not need it. Yeah, I think that the people that faced the greatest risk, obviously, were our patients. And then the people that faced certainly routine risk were the line staff, the people who worked, uh, the nurses, doctors, social workers, pharmacists, who worked in a building day in, day out. And so when we did our dual loyalty trainings to learn about and then support staff in keeping their mission aligned with their patients. Whereas the security staff sees them as inmates, right? This is part of the dual loyalty question. That's right. And over time, it's just inexorable. Dual loyalty is everywhere. And so it's a little bit like infection control in a hospital. It's not like you'll ever eliminate dual loyalty, but you want to know where the dual loyalty pressure is the greatest for staff so you can support them and keep them on track to really care for the patient in an ethical way. And so we would hear often from staff when we did the dual loyalty trainings that at the end of the day, their concern was their safety. And I would see this you know, consistently when a staff member speaks up about something in a way that the Department of Corrections doesn't like, they will experience very swift and very serious retaliation. And it can be retaliation in the form of verbal threats. Uh, we've had staff have their tires slashed. Uh, but there is actually a form of retaliation I've seen quite a bit and, hurt, and had staff suffer which is that when you're in a housing area with patients, with inmates, all of a sudden the security staff disappear, and then you're locked in a unit. And then inside the bubble, on the other side of the glass, you see the security officers just watching you. When you feel like I've experienced this, and it's so palpable because it's not that you think everybody who is in that housing area is going to attack you. In fact, I'm sure actually if something happened, most of the people there would come to your defense. It's that this is a threat about the power that they have over you. And that is a real, real concern when we ask staff to think about how to document abuse and neglect. And so that's why, as I said before, 
I believe in the, the importance of information systems and other processes that can take the line staff out of that kind of crucible because it's not fair or practical to ask them to you know, stand up to that type of abuse or neglect and, and come back to work and come back to work. Some do, but it's, it's just very tough. But then you still have line staff, health staff being asked to sign off on solitary confinement or even solitary confinement for the mentally ill, where it just really feels like there is no ethical way. There is no way to manage the dual loyalty problem there. That's right. I mean, the, the, you can't, solitary confinement has to be eliminated as a practice. That's the solution. There's no way. We contemplated a, a construct for solitary confinement where we would just say everybody has a baseline risk. And then we think that there are other people that are even higher risk. But you are absolutely right that what that does is it still puts healthcare workers in the role of punishing their patients or deciding which of them get punished. And so that just completely degrades the ethics and the role of the healthcare providers. And then you left Rikers for a final time as a professional in 2017. Jail numbers are going down, total population, but racial makeup isn't changing very much and incidents of violence are not going down, to the contrary. But I'm, I'm wondering what, what that felt like driving over the, the bridge that last time. Uh, it was hard to describe. Uh, it was... Yeah, I, I've never felt anything like it. I've felt, you know, like people would say, this huge weight coming off my shoulders. Um, yeah, it was really... Some of the dual loyalty, I imagine. I mean, just impossible to completely you know, be free of. I think that the for me, it was the, all of this conflict. I think one of the tough things about leading the health service is early on, I had to decide whether or not I would take an adversarial stance with the DOC or with city officials. And so it was clear that's what we had to do. But that didn't always make things easier for our patients or for our staff. And so because brutality was at the core of, of what was harming the health of our patients, I always felt comfortable with taking an adversarial role when I needed to, which I felt like actually was a lot. But as the smaller, uh, less powerful government agency in the setting, it meant that that, you know, probably robbed us of some effectiveness in some other ways where, you know, if we're cooperating and getting along all the time, we could. there are other things that could be done. So I think that the, the real challenges I faced were how to, like, manage the advocacy and adversarial stance on brutality with a lot of the other day-to-day health systems operations. And that's everybody who runs a correctional health service has to, has to do that. But I think that the core is who are your constituents? Is it really your patients or is it the, the security staff? And I was fortunate, I mean, not by accident, but I didn't work for the security service. So I didn't ever feel an obligation to meet uh, their priorities ahead of the needs of the patients. So we now have in in New York City, and it's a you know, a, a debate with national implications too, I think, this huge discussion about finally closing Rikers Island and replacing it with this system of four community-based, much smaller facilities that are modern, supposed to be modern design and focused on sort of preparing people for leaving jail and more humane uh, facilities. You advocate for improving conditions behind bars I wonder if you sometimes think that there's so much focus now on keeping people out of jail that it almost comes at the expense of advocating for improving conditions 
behind bars, that sometimes the people who are already detained can be forgotten in this discussion. I, I completely agree. I think that that's certainly what happened in New York City. You know, as the the daily census was coming down quite dramatically, you know, for over a decade. When I left, it was well under 10,000. So that was very st- steady march to decrease the number of people who are incarcerated. And during that time, the city of New York and its residents and its government generally turned its back on the plight of people who went into that place. And they seemed to be happy with the gains made in decreasing the rate of incarceration, which are incredibly important, but not in addressing these gross human rights violations and, and deaths and just rampant abuse that happened uh, to the people who did go into the jails. And so I think that any time I hear this question about focus on one or the other, my tendency is to stop and really try and validate the principle that we must do both. There is no path where we just do one or the other, because that's what we did in New York City, and that's how New York Rikers got so bad. So it's it's pretty clear from the book that you feel like, you know, Rikers and, and jails in general have been actually designed to confer, to inflict health harms onto people. So do you think then that it is possible to design a jail that will not do that? It's absolutely possible. I think that in epidemiology and public health, we talk a lot about relative risk. And so I believe, and I, our data show, that jail confers health risk to people. That includes risk of death and injury. So when we think about incarceration, it is absolutely true, and I put it in, I think, every chapter, that the surest way to avoid the risks, the health risks of incarceration, are to not have people incarcerated. That's one path. But there are correctional systems all over the world and actually in this country that have dramatically reduced the risk to health of incarceration. And so it is, to me, uh, an easy way out to say the only thing we should focus on is elimination of incarceration. The risk of suicide is probably a great place to start. It is clear how jails operate and built contributes and drives uh, this. I mean, the statistic itself kind of speaks for itself, right? But you know, if we go to Northern Europe and you look at uh, the correctional settings, they're, they're smaller. Uh, they obviously train and support the correctional staff much differently, um, but they have incredibly low rates of violence and they have very low rates of suicide, just to take one of them. So there is no doubt that many of the health risks of incarceration can be dramatically reduced. However, we first have to agree that this is a problem, and then we have to measure these. You know, in public health, if we can't measure it, then we can't really address it. And so the way we think that concussions in youth football uh, are important, well, the first step then is to start measuring all the times it happens and then think about how we can uh, make it happen less often. Uh, We do that with people falling out of beds in nursing homes, kids falling off of uh, scooters, e-bikes. We don't do it behind bars. I think some of the opposition to the city's plan for these new jails comes from a feeling of people not wanting the Department of Corrections to still be in charge of them. And as we've already referenced, there's not that much reason to think that the culture of uh, violence, this phrase, that that the culture of violence has has eased very much, if at all. In fact, just this week, there's new numbers from the Department of Corrections showing that reports of violence are up again across the board uh, on Rikers. And that's despite the population continuing to go down. So how confident are you that we can achieve this idea of a better designed, more humane jail if the Department of Corrections in its current form remains in charge? I mean, you know the DOC very intimately. 
this correctional department needs more than anything a plan to transform the workforce. And transform doesn't just mean, say, you have different jobs tomorrow. They need to be trained and supported in a way that has never happened so that you know, I mentioned some of the systems in other countries where correctional officers work much more like social workers, and they're supported, trained, uh, they have education. They have an academy that they go to that's not in a strip mall. They have, you know, resources that have not been put into this correctional department. So the transformation of the correctional department, I think there are two primary barriers right now. One is the lack of clarity about how uh, the city is going to invest in communities that are affected uh, by mass incarcerations. That means investing in employment and uh, health resources and housing, like with very uh, tangible, like, dollar figures and like structures, the same way they're talking about these jails. But the other is, how is the city going to transform the Department of Correction? And that transformation is, in my mind, probably more important and more complicated than simply the, the task of building new jails. And so one of the things you're doing now in your sort of the post-Rikers phase of your career is investigating questionable jail deaths that have taken place across the country, often at the request of of families. And I'm wondering what kind of perspective that work has given you on, on the sort of national picture of jails and the health risks that they impose on people. That's a great question. I think as I now pretty much have gone all over the country investigating deaths and some other jail and prison attributable uh, outcomes, I am struck by how little the truth of what people experience behind bars actually gets out. This is something that really floored me when I would start seeing patients at Rikers, that they would tell me things about how they came to be injured that were very consistent with my physical examination, consistent with all the facts and data I had in front of me, but were completely different than what the security staff had written down and what was even said publicly by security officials. And when I go around the country, I am floored by how elusive the truth is, even investigating something, and maybe because (laughs) investigating something as serious as a death. So that, you know, when I go to a jail or a prison that's had a string of suicides or uh, has had a very bad death, and I dig into the medical records and then go to the facility, it's often apparent very quickly that the truth of what has happened is generally known, but has been completely covered up. And I will say one of the most distressing aspects of this is this dual loyalty problem is that in almost none of these settings do you find health staff talking about or working to find out how is it that their own health service may be complicit or certainly silent in the face of abuse and neglect. So on the one hand, you have this dual loyalty problem of physicians working in what you call these paramilitary settings. Uh, On the other hand, near the end of the book, you talk about what you see as the special role physicians have in promoting social justice. Uh, You've been doing that work yourself. You've also, as, as you've referenced, you've worked with doctors struggling with human rights issues around the world in places like Iraq and Egypt and Uganda. So what is that that special role as you've now come to understand it? Well, patients trust us and they entrust us with their care, which is a, is a very intimate thing. They're turning over information about their vulnerability, their health vulnerability, but also they're often sharing much, much more than that. And so our role is and our obligation is to act in a way that's honest, that promotes their health, and also 
maintains their autonomy and their decision-making capacity, and we don't do things that hurt them. And so in correctional settings, that's very difficult to do. But what I have come increasingly to believe in, I mean, every passing year, every passing investigation leads me to feel this much more strongly, is that we have to provide systems for those doctors. Because no, we can't ask an individual doctor or nurse to stand up and be the lone voice of dissent for a different path. Especially uh, in some of these countries where you've worked with doctors. Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. And so I, there is always an opposition. I talked to somebody yesterday in another state who said, you know, we don't like mandates. Um, and this was in relation to the reporting of deaths. And it made me chuckle. I don't think there's a hospital administrator in the world that likes mandates, right, that would love to report every bounce back or every uh, infection. But we say that is such serious business that you must report it and you must prove to us that you're doing an adequate job. And so we need to bring some of that same evidence-based and systems-based improvement behind bars. And for me, that is the most important intervention for many of these issues. One of the really chilling features of sexual abuse behind bars is the ease with which correctional staff can move people around without anybody knowing, without any account. The class action suit by women who survived sexual abuse at Rikers really lays out very clearly some of the ways in which this happens. But when I started in 2008, the Department of Correction said they were implementing a new uh, modern a jail management system. So that jail management system, I don't believe, has still been implemented, and it's 2019. And that, to me, shows the lack of interest by policymakers in knowing the truth of what happens behind bars. But it also, to me, shows security and paramilitary organizations know that these types of information systems are a threat to their autonomy, their ability to do whatever they want. So when I find like better performing settings, places where uh, the jail administrators, the correctional officers, the, the sheriffs have bought into the need to eliminate brutality, to hold people to account, to have a fairer system. They've invested in these types of information systems. And in the places where they want nothing to do with it, uh, they th- that type of information is in very short supply. Well, Homer, I, I want to thank you so much, uh, well, for your work, first of all, for your book. Congratulations on that. It's a really important uh, document. And of course, thanks so much for coming in here uh, today and and giving us all this time. Thanks. I've I've been a great admirer of CCI and really going around the country, seeing many, many places that can benefit from the type of innovation that you all have led. So thank you. Well, thanks very much. I've been speaking with Homer Venters. He is a senior health and justice fellow at Community-Oriented Correctional Health Services and the author of this year's Life and Death in Rikers Island from John Hopkins Press. For more on Homer's work and uh, resources and references to accompany some of what we've been talking about in this episode, visit courtinnovation.org slash newthinking or click the link in your show notes. For more on Rikers, listen to our 2018 episode, Rikers, an American Jail. This episode was edited and produced by me. You can find me on Twitter at didacticmat. Technical support from the unmollifiable Bill Harkins. Samiha Mia is our director of design. Emma Dayton is our VP of outreach. Our theme music is by Michael Aaron at quivernyc.com. And our show's founder is Rob Wolf. This has been New Thinking from the Center for Court Innovation. I'm Matt Watkins. Thanks for listening. <laughs>